welcome to Louisiana Lefty, a podcast about politics and community in Louisiana, where we make the case that the health of the state requires a strong progressive movement fueled by the critical work of organizing on the ground. Our goal is to democratize information, demystify party politics, and empower you to join the mission because victory for Louisiana requires you. I'm your host, Linda Woolard. On this episode, I speak with my dear friend, Andrew Tizzolo, who is currently the chief of staff for New Orleans City Council Vice President, Helena Moreno, as well as a lawyer and a politico. While I've wanted to host Andrew on the podcast for years, we had quite a different conversation than we originally intended. In the aftermath of the Democrats' dismal showing in our 2023 statewide elections, what we've ended up with here is an insider's walk through the recent past, the present, and the future of state Democratic Party politics in Louisiana. Andrew Tuzolo, thank you so much for joining me on Louisiana Lefty. Thank you for having me, Linda. Long time listener, first time caller. You always listen to the podcast. I, you know, I tell you, I'm so impressed by this. You get up and either jog or work out every morning and you say, you're always one of the first people to tell me when you've listened to the podcast. So I appreciate that, but you are are a very loyal listener. (laughs) Loyal listener, you know, having two young children, I have the habit of getting up very, very early at an embarrassingly early time. I'm also a morning person, so I'll get up, I'll listen to podcasts, which is a lovely way to, uh, to, a companion for me while I'm running. But I also start texting people or communicating with people early about, you know, work or my thoughts and stuff. And so I'm a very frequent four to 6 a.m. texter, which people really appreciate. <laughs> That's what D&D is for, Andrew. Right. I always start with how we met and sure. we met back during the Obama campaign, I'm yeah. sure I remember the exact moment. Do you? Yeah, I do, actually, because you were helping organize, uh, I guess there are phone banks, out-of-state phone banks for Obama 08 in that what's now a psychiatrist's office on Maple Street. You probably know this. It was a very strange sort of garden-level office, you know, and you were there and you had a lot of accoutrement on, like lots of, you know, sort of regalia, right? And I didn't know who you were, but you were sort of in charge with another friend of mine who was helping. And yeah, I made calls and helped uh, to the extent to which I could with some of my friends there calling, I think we're calling Florida, Florida. if I'm not mistaken. Florida, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We We were calling Florida, Florida voters for Obama. Obama was probably the first like big, you know, sort of exciting presidential race that I really leaned into. And so, yeah, you were just sort of the person to talk to about it uh, at the time. I want to say before we go any further that yes. the Obama campaign, Obama 08, Obama mm-hmm. 08 was my introduction 08. to politics. Mm-hmm. But anything that I've really been involved in in politics since then, you have been a great advisor to me for many years. <laughs> And if I have had any success, there has always been some drop or 50 of Andrew Tozzolo in it. So I appreciate all the well, That's super Well, it's very kind of you, Linda. And I, I think really, actually, it's been a, a collaborative situation. I, I really always have enjoyed 
well, what you've had is not just your passion, but your just your dedication to organizing and bringing people together, and relentlessness, and and your and your ability to continue to do so despite long odds, and and when you're just a one woman show sometimes on at the beginning of things, uh, but what you've been able to build again and again, you know, your track record is impeccable in that regard, and something I certainly don't think I could do. So I've learned a lot more from you probably than you than you know. Well, you've got quite the string of successes yourself, sir. But um, tell me what first got you interested in politics? What what was that first spark for you? George W. Bush, like all people who are maybe around my age, when I went to college in 2000, I went to Boston College. I was a barely a political person, son of a, a small business Republican, hippie liberal mother. Those are my parents. Uh, and so I was sort of ambiguous or ambivalent, really, towards politics. And uh, going to, a, I wouldn't say a conservative college, it was pretty moderate and has become much more liberal. But uh, at the time, you know, there, there were a lot of folks that were Bush supporters, young people that were Bush supporters. And I was sort of ambivalent towards it. But frankly, like many people that were 18, 19 years old around 9-11 and the subsequent things that happened during the Bush administration and I don't really want to need to rehash it, but it became much more urgent to me that politics, you know, affected my life and affected our future. And it was important to be involved and there needed to be, you know, you need to put time and work in. And uh, it just so happened it's something that I really cared and liked, uh, cared about and liked. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I think of myself as having kind of a service mentality and I wanted to serve people. It kind of just makes me happy to help people. I and mean, I felt like you could help the most people by being involved in, you know, elected politics and and in public service, because you know, while I love volunteering and I like thing, doing things like that, I I think of there's just so much more work to be done on the systematic level, right? To do systemic change is like kind of something that I believe in deeply. So uh, you got to do that through the electoral process in this country, at least. So you said I do this, so I'll do it. My short my short bio is I ended up working on Capitol Hill. For a congressman, first an intern staff assistant kind of person. I did that for a couple of years. And then I got annoyed that everybody who was ordering me around had a, a JD or a, some sort of like higher degree. And being the restless person that, and or, you know, person that I am, I, I decided, well, I'm going to go get a JD. So I ended up going to law school here at Tulane, graduating from Tulane. And, and I've worked, frankly, in public service and around in and around politics and campaigns since. I've never as I tell people, I've never had a straight job, meaning I've never worked in the, pretty much worked briefly in the private sector, but mostly in the public sector. So I'm lucky enough to do something I love to do. And as my family and, and will tell you, it's like both something I love and my hobby so that it's inseparable between like what I love to do, what I do for a living. Uh, I'm very lucky in that regard, but also probably it's a curse to others who are like, can you please have another interest? So can we talk about something else? <laughs> Were you a Democrat before George W. Bush? I think I I probably wouldn't have been able to tell you what that was or what, uh-huh. you know, I grew up in a, like a rural, sounds a weird place, a very, a rural part of New Jersey. I didn't have a stoplight near my house for like the first, you know, within 10 minutes of my, 15 minutes of my house until I was like, like 11 years old. And it was a rural area, but it was largely kind of filled with a, the big sort of industry was ETS, which makes the SAT. And then also mobile, ExxonMobil had a massive tech center, like where all these scientists were to do, they used to anyway. And so everyone that I grew up in a town that was full of like 
children of like hippie scientists, et cetera, who worked at ETS or, or mobile, but in a rural area. Anyway, so I got to, like I said, DC and I went, to, went on to law school, but I wouldn't have been able to describe my politics probably until college. You know, I've been trying to get you on the podcast for a while. And, you know, my intention and what we focused on in early seasons were really often, you know, how to get more Democrats elected and how sure. to run campaigns and how to be more involved, you know, politically in different ways with maybe community organizations. And I had intended really in this season to focus a little more on the community groups and organizations yep. who um, really are, are helping individuals and and, and doing non-political work, but that I still perceive as part of the progressive movement. Yep. I've diverted from that a couple of times for various reasons. One, because like I've said, we're in an election year and I felt like we should talk to some of the candidates and, you know, we've had these results that did not turn out great for Democrats. Nope. So the other thing that we've ended up doing because how this election year went is sort of inextricably linked to the state of the state party. Mm -hmm. We also focused on that a little bit. So we probably aren't having the conversation I in initially intended to have with you. <laughs> but um, uh -huh. I did want to talk to you a little bit first about the elections this year. And let's debrief. What, what went wrong, Andrew? You know, we've come off of eight years of a Democratic governor, but really the rest of the statewide offices were all held by Republicans. The legislature has been near or over a supermajority of Republicans for at least the last four to six years. Um, so it kind of looks like a complete Republican takeover, but it, it almost had been there except for John Bell, right? And so it looks a little bit more dramatic than what's been, which is a, a long-term erosion. Uh, you know, Louisiana is like typically kind of like behind the times in a sense that like, you know, David Vitter was the first Republican senator elected in 2004 uh, in Louisiana since Reconstruction, uh, even though Republicans had replaced sort of conservative Dixiecrats across the South in the Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, um, South Carolina, um, You've, you've seen like you saw that happen really in the 90s and it took Louisiana another 10 years to get there. And, you know, back when Dave Treen, I think, was running for governor, this is like before I was born. But, you know, they said they could fit the Republican Party in a phone booth because this was a one party state. So there's been a and, and that's for a lot of reasons. Right. But the challenge here is that, like, Louisiana has been on a long trajectory of conversion to the more um, nationalized politics. Right. Where there's a very clear sort between conservative or right wing voters who all nearly, I would say, 99 percent align with the Republican Party now and with non right wing voters um, uh, and uh, and non conservatives. And so the Democratic Party in Louisiana used to have like a lot of facets to it. Right. There was like conservative elements to it. There were moderate elements to it. There were liberal elements to it, progressive elements to it. And truthfully, Louisiana is now sorting much more like our sort of neighbor states, right? All of whom have very significant Republican and conservative right-wing majorities. So um, I guess I would say that, you know, the results are shocking only in the way in which the lack of interest in the elections, um, which I think was, you know, multifaceted again. It's like, 
I, I think Sean Wilson is, is a is a lovely man and a good man, and in other circumstances might have been a pretty good candidate. But coming off of eight years of a Democratic governor, you've coming with uh, limited funding um, and without a driving narrative, frankly, for his election. Though I think he would have been a good governor. I think you have to look at John Bell's election in 2015 when he really ran with some very clear, pointed critiques of the previous administration and some very clear contrast with his opponents, one of which is that he was definitively the candidate who would expand Medicaid in Louisiana. Um, he ran on that. Uh, he contrasted himself with nearly every other candidate, so much so that many of them realized from the polling that they had the kind of edge towards Medicaid expansion, even though none of them had a full-throated endorsement of it like he did. And so everyone sort of was chasing John Bell on that in 2015. And I always note that people like don't recognize that. Like if you look at the polling against Vitter, even a year before the election, John Bell was always leading or second or first or second in the polls because of the vast Republican field then, three well-financed candidates. And two, Dave Vitter was highly un disliked by voters already. Um, and John Bell was you know, people don't think of it this way, but he was a very good candidate and he was cruising because Democrats were coordinated around him and he really hustled that race. He did a great job. He was a, a dynamic House caucus leader, which is is a, was to his credit was a hard position to run from, but he did so. And he had significant base um, electorate pieces of the electorate that were his base, one of which was teachers unions and unions generally. John Bell stuck closely with unions and they rewarded him with their, their full-throated support. And John Bell made significant um, inroads in uh, mitigating the cultural politics with, which dominate some of these elections by being, you know, having his position on abortion and having his position on, um, on gun safety. And I'll one can argue whether or not all of those things turned out well for people and whether or not that was the right thing to do from a governing perspective, but they were the right things to do, Whether and they were genuine, by the way, politically. So many elections, just like 2015, this one, they're all, while they are supposed to be about the future, they also reflect people's uh, feelings on the past. John Bell is running not just against a historically unpopular top Republican in David Vitter, but against the least popular governor in the history of Louisiana, which was Bobby Jindal. And Bobby Jindal's legacy, which has not recovered and should never recover based on his activities as governor, was what John Bell put the stake in, which was that Jindal, sort of the governing philosophy, especially as Jindal lost interest in governing was more interested in becoming part of the conservative political machine and becoming a presidential candidate to whatever effect that had. Um, so, you know, those things were driving Jindal's and his approval rating, if I'm not mistaken, was like near 20% when he was leaving office, making him the least popular governor to ever, um, ever in the, in, in the state. And that probably goes back to polling, the beginning of polling. And so I would just say that um, John Bell had you know, the atmospherics were right for John Bell to rise. He had a, 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 a deeply popular crusade to expand Medicaid, which was popular across Democrats, Republicans, independents. He was a, had a strong profile as both a, a, a service member, a, a, a West Point grad, very good cultural politics. And he's a sharp messenger as well, which is probably less appreciated about John Bell. He's a really sharp messenger. He's on, he's on message. He is very quick-witted. He's very. He had a lot of very, I think, 
his presentation might not be high high volume, but it is very effective um, and it's very welcoming. Uh, I think he comes across as a even keeled, commonsensical guy up to many voters, and he seemed, you know, clear eyed and not some liberal whatever caricature they wanted to make him for the voters he had to turn. And we can rehash all the sort well, of the tropes. Yeah, people knew him well enough that some of the things they tried to say about him couldn't stick to him. They couldn't stick. Uh, John Bell was a clearly defined product, and even look, in 2015. Your point about Bobby Jindal, John Bell as the House Democratic Caucus leader attacked Bobby Jindal pretty aggressively and consistently, mm -hmm. persistently, but so was the state party at the time. The state party was defining Bobby Jindal quite a bit as well. Yeah, I mean, there was a real coordinated effort. And again, that was driven by the, the atmosphere somewhat because you had this really unpopular governor who even, who I think the middle of the road, I hate to say the persuadable kind of folks who were not necessarily democratic leaning voters, but weren't, were really deeply unhappy with Jindal. There's a searing message about the failures of, you know, the Jindal governing philosophy, whether it's closing hospitals, whether it was on the education front, whether it was on um, the budgeting and the deep hole that they left from a budget perspective. And John Bell took advantage of that rightfully. And he also could offer, Jindal was refusing not just the Medicaid expansion, he, he led the charge against Obamacare, fought Obamacare, which was Medicaid expansion inherent because Bobby Jindal was his own, himself, a healthcare expert, supposedly. And, but he also refused rural broadband money, right? right? And, As the train, we all remember and the light, and the light rail. And the trains. Bobby Jindal made it his purpose to reject things that I think Louisiana voters couldn't quite associate with that, like that they were bad, that because they were associated with Obama, it made sense for him to reject them from a Republican presidential candidate's perspective. But right. as a governor, it hurt people. And people right. saw that. And the philosophy that John Bell was saying is like, look, like I'm going to do things that are good for Louisiana, leading with these things that Bobby Jindal has absolutely opposed. Um, and Medicaid expansion, I remember the LSU polling at the time, it showed there was broad support across you know, partisanship because rural hospitals needed it. The ending medical bankruptcy, getting people access to medications, ending the flight of working people who simply couldn't afford healthcare and were showing up in emergency rooms, even though they had, you know, paid jobs. Right? We're not talking about people who were, who were, um, who were unemployed here. We're talking about employed people who simply could had no healthcare. Everyone could understand that, and I think John Bell took advantage of that of Bobby yeah. Jindal's failings. But the. I guess the thing I was saying before about it was John Bell pushing back on Jindal as well as the state party. It wasn't yeah. just in the election year. That yeah. started three years out. He started running three years out. He had been going up toe to toe against Jindal, even though Jindal was unpopular uh, yeah. already for the things he was doing or not doing. There were sharp contrasts being drawn for years leading up to that. And he effectively ran against Jindal, even though he had different opponents, his run was effectively against Jindal. Agreed. And I think I think that was the one thing, and I have friends that worked for Sean Wilson. Again, I like Sean Wilson. I, I, yeah. I voted for him. I thought he was, I thought he would have been a good governor. And I think the challenge for Sean is that 
for reasons, whether he didn't have the funding, whether the atmospherics are different, he couldn't draw the sharp enough contrast with either his opponents or the vision that his opponents, especially Jeff Landry, was presenting. And so I don't think there was enough. When you give people a contrast, you give people a purpose. Right. And when people didn't have a purpose to vote because they didn't know what would have been different. And I think while I think Jeff is getting he's getting credit because his campaign, I thought, was decently done in the sense that like Jeff ran just like David Vitter tried. But Jeff did it effectively. I just like Governor elect Landry did it effectively by really running to the middle. Right. Being very benign in his presentation. You know, he was going to be he was going to make public safety a priority and fix schools and, you know, whatever, like things that weren't, he didn't run as a radical. Even Rasponi really ran much more to the right than Jeff ran. And Jeff, that's smart, right? Because this, the valence of Louisiana politics is not hard rightism, right? There's this populist center right piece, right? It's not, it's not, and it's interesting because I think the, the tradition has been, we've got, except for Jindal, had very populist governors forever, right? And what I mean by that is like, there isn't this, well, you know, this um, uh, low tax, low spend perspective. Actually, I think a lot of voters are kind of interested in spending stuff, right? Because we have a lot of parochial um, organs in Louisiana. What I mean by that is the rural hospitals or the the parish sheriffs or all these pieces that where everybody kind of doesn't, no one wants to like eliminate sheriff's deputies. Nobody wants to close rural hospitals, right? Even the hard right conservatives, because even the, 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 the um, many public universities we have, right? Another, many of these centers are parochial job centers and, and certainly articles of pride throughout Louisiana in ways that I think other right tilting states are much less respective of. And that's our populist sort of parochial populist origins that continue you know it's still the huey longism of like a chicken in every pot free books for kids like this was always a this state wasn't as ideologically reagan governor-elect landry did what he needed to do i think effectively in adhering to that tradition and talking about those things you were talking about contrast and not drawing Mm -hmm. enough contrast but the other piece and i I mentioned this on twitter about Mm -hmm. dustin ranger in his race Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think he did a good job. He did. He ran what I said, and I'll say here is he, he ran nine months. He was teaching people about the economics of the state. He was preaching inclusion and success for all. Yep. And great climate uh, message too. climate uh, and the coast message mm-hmm. opportunity for all. But what I said to him is it's it's really hard. You may have the best message in the world, but if you cannot get it in front of voters, your message is not is essentially non-existent, right? I and agree. you and I have dealt with this in multiple campaigns. We've talked sure. about campaign after campaign. If you can't afford the mailers, if you can't afford the phone calls and the texts, if you can't afford the digital ads or TV ads for some races, if you can't afford those things, people just don't know you exist. Yeah, I totally, th- I think Dustin did a great job. He had a great message. He worked really hard. It is deeply hard to get people interested in the treasurer's race. Sure. It's it's <laughs> it's like of all the offices, I think it has the least attractive set of reasons that a regular voter would care about it. The attorney general's race has a little bit more interest um, obviously, the governor's race 
but it was so like, right, like, I'm saying this for mm-hmm. Wilson and Granger both. Yeah. It was sort of the issue of they could have had the best message in the world, but if they couldn't get in front of people. Right. Right. So you, you've got two things, right? You've got either you've either got to have a message that gets to enough people that they like, or you've got to be able to mobilize enough voters that are partisan and are going to vote for the Democrat because they're the Democrat. That's sort of your two options. Agreed. I, and I think that, you know, the top of the ticket has to do that. I mean, um, Sean just didn't have enough money to do that in any real way at all whatsoever. I mean, Sean's campaign was not well funded. Um, I don't. You know, you and I have been around the Democratic Party here. I, I've lived in Louisiana now. I'm not a native, obviously, nor I know, nor are you. But I've been here, I counted the other day, I think almost 17 years. Okay. And so I've lived the balance, almost the balance of my life here. Um, and, you know, the Democratic Party has has rarely been the, you know, people have this imagination that they're, it's a farm team. It's just like Major League Baseball, you know, and they've got people playing in the minors. And that's not true. Right. And now it would be great if the party did these things, but historically, even that's not been true. Right. Um, even going back years and years and years, the party, uh, as an organ, unlike the Wisconsin democratic party, which famously has like a uh, money and talent and, and knocks doors and does all the work and is wonderful, um, in Louisiana. And I think this is true of many States. The democratic party is a, a, a layover for campaigns where they want to maximize their spending its best role, and I think under the previous chair, uh, under Chair Peterson, whom obviously I, I'm very familiar with and is I consider a political mentor of mine, um, was the best coordinator of resources, especially as outside groups have begun to pro, um, proliferate. You, the, 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 the party can be an, an amazing coordinator amongst many groups supporting Democratic candidates, which I think could be the best role it could play. And not as a permanent organ, it can communicate Democratic message, which I think it should do, but it should deeply coordinate resources, even if it, it itself does not have those resources, but many outside groups or even large regional groups might want to figure out what's going on. The party can be a hub, right? And all those spokes can plug into that hub, even if the hub itself doesn't get $10 million in it. It can, in fact, and this is true, by the way, the Louisiana Republican Party, which is not also a permanent organ of part, you know, you don't see candidates being drawn through the Republican Party of Louisiana. None, I don't think any of the current ones were recruitees of the Republican Party of Louisiana. Uh, that's just not how candidate recruitment works not in Louisiana and not in many states, although there are states where it does work this way because the organ, the party organs are not structured like permanent things. They are sort of like they ramp up and down the way that they work here. Now, I'm not saying that's the right way to do it, but that is the way it works here. But I think from the perspective of what can be done, the party can be a tremendous organizer and coordinator of resources. And we could do much better, obviously, than we have done in both this cycle uh, and, you know, in the last couple cycles we've had here in Louisiana, I'm hopeful that the party, you know, for a lot of reasons, whether it's a new leader or, or they've just got some better strategy around how to coordinate, because it's important whether or not people are Democrats or not. It's important that it hold leaders accountable and coordinate, uh, especially opposition, because there are some things Governor-elect Landry that will end up doing that he's already projected sort of prospectively that he's going to do that I think aren't the right idea for a lot of people. 
And someone has to stand up for these people. And there are certainly groups across Louisiana that will do so, local groups, grassroots groups. But if there's no, there has to be some coordinator of it. And the party is uniquely suited to that role as a communicator. Um, but only if a it performs. A, conven a convener of. A convener. It absolutely is. a. It, it can be a supreme convener of, um, of, as a communicator and as a resource allocator. Um, it's done neither of those things, frankly recently um and i think to you know i read a lot of comments on the internet reddit the uh, uh, twitter etc and people oh the party failed a terrible failure you know this cycle and no doubt but not for the, uh, some of the reasons that people think um not because it didn't recruit candidates necessarily because i don't think its best role is doing so i think people sh candidates are are in my view often they have to be self-motivated. It's hard to convince someone to run for something where wow. there's so much work involved. Like Dustin's a good example of a guy, no one's necessarily recruiting Dustin, but because of his commitment to the work, he's a great candidate. Whether or not he could succeed or not, we could add to that, right? As people who wanna see him succeed, we could have added to that. The party could have coordinated better, but the party wasn't gonna create Dustin Granger. He is a person. No, but I'll and similarly, John Bell. I'll push back on that a little bit. In the sense that there, you know, party building inherently will surface people who should be running for office. So if yes. you're doing that long-term work of building the party, making the party something people want to be a part of, uh, being in their communities and finding the leaders in the communities who can rise up and run. I don't, you're absolutely right. You can't convince someone to run and, and nor should you because, you know, there, first of all, there's no money in it. <laughs> Secondly, there's a lot of scrutiny in it that a lot of people just don't want. And then third, some of these positions are just thankless. Totally. You do have to have a heart to serve in some ways, right? Right. Like you were saying, totally. right. You have to have a heart to serve to want to do this. But if people aren't getting that interaction from the party so that they know opportunities exist and some training on how do you participate in this way in the first place, there's no circumstance under which we should have majority Republican legislature because there aren't enough people on the ballot to, to run. Not, not I totally agree. It should never be because the Democrats didn't try. I agree. That's not the reason that should happen, which is why it, it did right now. Party has to be responsible for making sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, I think we're saying the same. So, Linda, I would just say that the party. So people believe the party is like some smoke filled room and yeah, people yeah. are like, like, oh, we'll get so and so the run in wind parish and so and so the right, win, right, run right, in right. Jefferson. That's not how it works. I think the party could, though, if it were optimally used, be a resource for the People who have the knowledge, the, the 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 groups, whether it's swing left, sister district, and all these things that have sprung up that have candidate recruitment, candidate tutorial, can, you know, all the things that you know that I do IWO has helped done in the past and other groups, you know, that have kind of trained candidates. The party could, if it were optimally used, be a resource saying, Hey, I'm a person, I live in such and such place, I'm interested in this, but I don't know how to connect. I'll contact the party and the party will not like write me a check, which is some people believe like, oh, the party has billions of dollars and they'll just, they'll finance your campaign, which will never happen and doesn't happen. But rather that they could talk, they could get you on the list of people who could take such and such training on the list of people that could be given, and the Republicans do this really well, given credibility through like 
the recognition of your work, right? So if you're a wonderful so-and-so person that done, does X or Y, what if what, these groups who can identify talent and say like, we're going to lift you up and send you to, you know, Detroit or Cleveland where there's a conference where people are talking about this and we can highlight the work you've done and help bring people attention and give you credibility. The party could be not a recruiter in the way that people imagine, but a recruiter in the sense that like they're a resource for people who want to run and can connect you with the right people to help you, even local people. I mean, one of the annoying things about the party, I still believe is like, I know the party has to make some sort of operational funds, but you have to pay money to get access to vote builder, to be able to, to get, you know, lists of voters, which people are always talking about. But this tool is kind of like, we've passed the point at which this is expensive or complicated technology. This is just access that we should give to people who want to start organizing. We should just give that to people. I appreciate there's some data security pieces. You don't want to just let nefarious people have access to everything. But I don't see why there's a financial barrier, um, which usually means you have to create a candidate committee and get some donations to be able to. Not everyone has $2,500 or $5,000. Most people don't sitting around to buy access to list of Democratic voters in my little precinct, right? If you just want. So I think there's a there's just resources the party ultimately has access to because there's so many various groups who want to work, but they don't really know who to talk to, especially if they're out of town or out of state or even in state. They don't know who to talk to in another parish. And the party could connect people. Yeah. They really could connect people if they wanted to. Well, and the other thing the party does have access to are national experts. Absolutely. And so if you are running for office, you could have national experts come speak to people about how, okay, here are the things. Let me be your consultant. Right. <laughs> I, I can be the consultant to five different, not permanently, not for the length of the campaign, but um, you know, they could they could have some Zooms or trainings or whatever with folks who know how to run campaigns so that candidates have a better understanding of it. Andrew, I spoke to totally. a couple I spoke to a couple of candidates who had been talked into running and I was, they'd already qualified. So there weren't that many weeks left. There aren't that many weeks between qualifying and the primary election. Yeah. I was astonished at how little they had been prepared yep. and how little they understood what they needed to do, what was expected of them. There was just no pre prep done at all. Yep. And I felt horrible I felt horrible being like the voice of reality to them. It's like, oh, you're like, you, <laughs> sorry, you're not going to win. Like, you don't have any money. No. You don't have any campaign staff. You don't have a website. You don't have any way for someone to donate to you. Like, that's you've got six weeks still voting. I don't know how many weeks. I'm not, you know, remembering the exact math. But it, there's got to be something that the party can do to make sure that people understand when they run, what they're getting into, and to help them get that stuff up and running. That would be so such a service that they could offer. Yeah. I mean, I, I virtually everyone um, has rightfully dunked on the part on the party's performance. Mm -hmm. um, and I, again, I'll just say that like, they're not wrong. It was terrible. There's no way to spin it that it was good. Um, but there's so much that doesn't relate to campaign finance payments that you're making to such and such groups or whatever consultants being hired, but all to preparing people on how to be successful on their own mm -hmm. and how to be successful in small races, police juror races, right? 
um, races that matter. Everyone says this and it's true. And, you know, Republicans typically right wing groups, they have more money, not to say they have all the money, but they have more money. But there's a concerted project on the right to recruit people as far down as school board. And I guarantee if you talk to Democratic elected school board members, even in Orleans Parish, I bet most of them, if not all of them, have never been contacted by any outside Democratic groups to help foster their careers if they intend to proceed forward. And school board is just an example, but it could be your police jury, you could be a constable, you could be any anything in any parish in Louisiana. But to what extent has anyone ever contacted you do and highlighted like, hey, you have some talent and interest. Would you like to proceed in your journey on public service, how you can serve more people and make more change? And I guarantee that right wing groups have contacted most of these school board folks or police jurors to some extent and sent them to conferences or talk to them, have, you know, Zooms and private meetings. And there's this has been a decades long process. Part of the reason why the right's been so ascendant, although not the only reason, but the electoral success is not just by accident. It's not because uh, voters have suddenly turned right wing. Now, there are certainly changes in voter behavior, but a lot of it has to do with there are more and better prepared, especially in states like Louisiana, right wing candidates than there are on the left. There just aren't candidates. It's not. To, I think people would be very, very receptive to economic populist uh, uh campaigns and policies around issues like the minimum wage, around issues like uh, access to medical care, about paid leave, access to climate issues. I mean, these are all things I think there are a lot of voters of different persuasion that might want to see progress on infrastructure spending and access to public transit, all these things, I think, but that there's virtually nobody running um, in a concerted way to do so. And I think that's, it's a failure, certainly of the party, but it's a failure beyond just the party. I mean, the party apparatus is controlled by elected DSCC members, as you know very well as a former candidate for party chair. And we're proud to help you try to become party chair for the exact reason, because people like you who are organizers and coordinators at heart need to be in charge of the party. It's not like a boss's thing. You know, the idea that you're some sort of important person as party uh, executive director or chair is, is false. Like you shouldn't be, you're not the candidate and you shouldn't be. Um, and I think, again, I'll, I'll tout the efforts of our previous party chair, again, who got a lot of guff for being an elected official. But, uh, and I will say this, knowing the full um, breadth of all that's happened, I would say was deeply devoted to not making the party about oneself, but about coordinating efforts to elect Democrats where possible. And it's not been easy, um, but I will just highlight that that is the nature of what the party the party chair needs to be a spokesperson needs to, and chair or executive director it doesn't matter one more or another needs to be a spokesperson leading the charge for accountability for elected officials that aren't helping people and it needs to be a resource allocator and coordinator and if they're not doing it they need to have staff doing it um and that's that's what i think has been missing i hope we can change that i think that's it's it's incumbent and i've heard you say this and i've heard um commissioner lewis Devonte lewis say this as well and others um, Representative Landry, and and I think they're wonderful people as well. Um, you know, we have some really good elected Democrats in Louisiana, despite people I think like Representative Jason Hughes and Senator Harris have been really great champions. And despite facing 
odds, super, you know, a majority, super majority odds of Republican. I think, like I said, there's a tremendous amount of people, I think, that, you know, if coordinated and organized can make a big difference. I don't mean to leave out anyone there. There's other great. I think we do have some great folks, both elected and organizers, too. But there's very little coordination. The party chair job. And, and so just as a reminder to folks, because this has started to be. I've started to hear this talked about again. Someone mentioned it on Roland Martin the other night mm -hmm. that I. They didn't mention me. They mentioned that there had been a candidate running against Katie Bernhardt. That was Ted James. Ted James mm -hmm. was the actual candidate who ran. Right. Right. Uh, I, I ended up running because he was he wouldn't phrase it this way, but I will. He was essentially forced out of the race. I appreciate that your boss, Helena Moreno, actually was one of the folks who kind of pushed, nudged me into, you know, well, you know, you, you've got to step up and, and run mm -hmm. now. Yeah. Um, so I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the folks who did talk to me about that. Uh, and mm -hmm. I've talked before about really the, the final push coming from Peyton Rose, Michelle mm -hmm. talked about that frequently on the podcast. I knew it was a long shot. I also knew because I talked to folks about it at the beginning of the year and done some research on it. And I'd seen what the job was up close and personal when I worked at the party. It is a thankless job. It is a mm -hmm. hard job and uh, it is a lot of work and the right automatically hates you because mm -hmm. you have to, that, you know, the right has to attack the democratic party chair. Mm -hmm. You get, way more attacks from the left way more yeah way more arrows yeah. from the left so if you're not willing to agree to go in and work hard <laughs> try to raise a lot of money that's really hard to find places for it to come from yeah and be the spokesperson you're talking about all the while wearing a suit of armor because people will be attacking you it yeah. is not the job for you it's just not the job for you and you shouldn't be running for it yeah no, I, I mean, you know, you know how how much we wanted and certainly we love Ted James and he's he's a really great state rep and I hope he comes back to serve in Louisiana. I know he's a federal uh, uh, appointee now, uh, but and I'm hoping he can. I, back I was Louisiana a strong, I was a strong yeah. supporter. No, you were. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, we were. We all were. And I, I think Ted would have done a really good job because he's a tremendous communicator and he's a he's a he's just a great coordinator of people. I think he inspires people. I think he's been on the forefront of that. And I, like I said, I do hope he comes back and serves uh, when he's done with his federal service. Um, but you're right. I mean, you know, the, it's a thankless job. It's a tough job. It's a job where you're going to make, there are always going to be people telling you that you're not doing a good enough job, especially because then there's a lot of things outside of your control as party chair, but you inevitably for various reasons, take the responsibility of those things uh, on, even when there's many things out like way above your pay grade that happen. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a job. It's a, it's a funny job that, um, you know, I don't know how or who could be successful necessarily completely, but I think people could do a better job than what we have today. Um, and you do have to be that person who's not willing, is not in it for themselves. And that's important. Um, not because, you know, everyone's self-righteous and everybody wants a, the perfect person. There's no perfect person, but it doesn't, it is a job that is uniquely not one that will help you in your career. Likely um, it is not going to be something that 
necessarily it could, but probably won't be something that you uh, are burnishing your resume for a next thing. It's something you have to dedicate yourself to and do the work. Um, so and I think, and that's been true, like for frankly, Republican chairs have had the same uh, issue as well. Um, but specifically on the Democratic side during the circ these circumstances. So we have, you know, folks across the state looking at this now and seeing how, yeah. you know, is this something that we can change? Can we, you know, every mm -hmm. every few years th this occurs where people want to change the party and they look at, you know, can they get the votes together to do it? And mm -hmm. of course, we've been trying to, through the podcast, educate people where we can. There's a whole sure. lot of people about this across the state and educating a lot of conversations, educating people on it. Um, we saw one of the issues that happened with the sort of movement to get the leadership we have today really came from the wall that was put up that was sort of insurmountable was a uh, coalition of the New Orleans delegation, not all, but a lot of the New Orleans delegation, the Legislative Black Caucus and the AFL-CIO backed the chair that we have. And mm -hmm. so my worry is <laughs> that could very easily happen again. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I here's I the mean, thing. I'm, I'm I'm hopeful that that there are enough seats uh, that are independent that or, or that enough of those organizations will want change, but um, you know that that was that's a large voting block of the DSCC. And, and look, we, we were absolutely pushing against a lot when when you when Ted was the the candidate when you were the candidate. We pushed very hard, and I know you made tons of calls. I know Elena made calls. We all made calls to try to way people but you know just in the same way that john bell's election was a reflection mm. on bobby jindal the race for chair at the time for reasons that i think were really unfair were was sort of predicated on there are certain people who weren't in control of the party when the previous chair was in charge and so were locked out of whatever they believed they were locked out of and and so you know, politics happen like that sometimes where, uh, you know, there there was also, I think, to be frank, there was a, and not by the people I think you're talking about, but there were some elements out there in, especially older elements of the Democratic Party and some DSCC members that basically didn't want a black woman to be chair of the party. That's right. And I, I think that's absolutely the motivation. They didn't like that uh, Chair Peterson was outspoken and aggressive um, and that she was from New Orleans and that she was fearless and took people on when, especially Bobby Jindal, she, I mean, she took, I think with even personal risk, political risk, took on the sitting governor with in a full-throated critique of his governing style and made um, really, I think, bold and, and needed contrasts, even when it wasn't popular to do it because she was the leader of the opposition. And I think a lot of people who don't didn't want to see, especially a black woman, have these critiques and have this outspokenness represent the Democratic Party because it didn't align with their transactional view of politics. Right. They didn't like that. that. Was, and that was right? the initial push, right? So long before right. the right. folks I was mentioning kind of came in at the last. Yes, absolutely. And I don't think any of the people you're describing are those people. I'm talking about the no, initial. No, no. Right. 
Right. Yeah. The initial push to before Chair Peterson had declared whether she was going to run for chair or not, there was already right. that group you're talking about that were organizing to try to find someone else. And we've talked about that on podcast before, too. Yeah. But that was the initial push to get a coalition together um, th- that was going to elect this essentially mostly unknown, unskilled, <laughs> inexperienced person. Right. They they picked this person and chose them and decided they were going to push that person. But see, I think there's a contrast there just about styles of politics, right? So like, you know, Senator Peterson has always, in my view, and I've known her for a little bit, she represents a very specific type of politics that I, I would describe as like conviction-based politics, right? Politics that are born and driven by one's values and, mm-hmm. and determination to um, uphold and defend and and proliferate values that help in her view, in my view about her were about helping people in all sorts of ways and standing up for people who were vulnerable and for people who were not winner winning the spoils of a, a system that didn't help poor people, help people of color, help non-connected, you know, lobbyist funded interests, but um, regular people in Louisiana who needed uh, increased minimum wage, who needed parental leave, who needed Medicaid expansion, who needed real help where we have a poor state and and alleviation from poverty and and opportunity, right? So that's the style of politics I think that Karen brought, that always brought and certainly brought as chair. And there's another style, right, which is like sort of more transactional, right, which is deal making and coalition, sort of building coalitions through deals, not through likeness or through motivation. And I would continue to argue as an opposition party, which is the Democratic Party is definitively an opposition party, right. is not in power. You need to have be driven by conviction and show authentic, authenticity in the expression of your values and the expression of the alternative and the expression of contrast. And that trying to equivocate or trying to do soft Republican stuff will never win you electoral support. And I know people say, well, John Bell, well, he's a moderate, but John Bell is not a moderate on economic issues. He has driven clear contrasts with his, with Republicans on the issues I've spoken about. These economic issues, the alleviation of poverty, the the circumstances around the wage and, and leave and, and, and union rights and all these things. John Bell's not equivocated on those things. He's drawn strong contrast and, had conviction, whether people are upset with him having not achieved these things, I think he would, I would just look to look at the legislature, right? And people would say, well, the governor should have done better with recruiting candidates or helping people. Well, look, all that maybe is true. Maybe it would have helped, maybe it wouldn't. We can argue all those points, but I would say John Bell has not retreated on those issues. And I think he also has expressed those convictions and those contrasts and those authenticity on those issues, which drive people to support you. Yeah. No one supports equivocation. Equivocation does not drive the passion you need to organize, to call your neighbors, to put up a sign, to give your time and effort to sacrifice. Because you will only sacrifice if someone motivates you. There is, there's no amount of money you can pay someone to sacrifice for things like this. And so I think that's what you need in party leadership when you're in opposition. Specific, specifically, you need someone who will drive someone to do something extra because they believe that this person is fighting for me, right? We talk about that all the time. That means expressing authentic values and contrast and being on your side. And I think that's what we need now more than ever. 
we've been talking about Chair Peterson a little bit, and mm-hmm. I, I haven't talked about her much uh, on the on the podcast, mostly because there's always been other issues to talk about. Um, sure. Someone kind of bemoaned to me the other day that they were upset because they were trying to defend her against some folks who were disparaging her online. And I said, well, you know, the way she left office, the way she left her job does make it a little bit difficult sometimes to defend her. But the issue people bring up time and time again, which really irks me, Andrew, is this, she tried to talk John Bell out of running for governor. And I, I, first off, would just, some of that was intentionally placed in the media the way that it was placed, right? Uh, It was definitely intentionally placed. And it was repeated ad nauseum by certain as uh, evidence that she was a bad party chair, which I think is it, both uh, the story is inaccurate. I right. think the the intentions were not genuine. It was but an intended. It was a slur. What is rarely mentioned is that there were two other high-ranking elected Democrats in the meeting. It was a bad day for John Bell, but there were three hundred sixty-five, if not six hundred, other days where those folks were fighting for him. Right. I'm just some guy commenting at this point on this, although I was around at the time. It just wasn't a meeting I was at. I'll just speak about Karen. All those other people can discuss whether what their motivations were and what they wanted to do or didn't do. And I, I genuinely think I, my view is that all the people you've mentioned, I think, do want did do and did want to do what's best for the state of Louisiana and do have their genuine motivations for trying to make electoral politics work to help people. I, I don't. I can't measure all that for all those people and I won't try to, Fair. I can't think of someone who worked harder or was more dedicated to electing Democrats in Louisiana for longer than Karen Carter Peterson. And to pretend, and I know what, and I'm again, I'm not, John Bell's not my best friend. I, I, I think he's done many, very good things as governor. I worked around his team for a long time when I was working at health I, and I have a lot of respect for him. I think he's done great things for the state. Um, and so he doesn't need my commentary and I don't know what he really thinks, but my understanding is that was, he said, I think even that was one of the worst days of his campaign. And I can absolutely imagine being, if that happened the way it did, that having a bunch of political heavyweights talk to you about not doing the thing you believe in and not giving you full support, or at least at the time feeling like they were not full throat supporting you was very hard to take. And, and, and frankly, Every candidate will always, in every case, will deal with a meeting, maybe not of that caliber or that circumstance, but where you don't get what you want out of people you need something from. And you want people to be believe in you the way you believe in you, because you have to believe in yourself more than anything else. But what I would say was that Karen Carter-Peterson as chair, my experience was there was nobody who was more dedicated and more convicted of trying to elect Democrats and John Bell, by the way, specifically John Bell in 2015 and 2019. There are all sorts of conversations that people have for various reasons. And if you take them at their word that they are trying to do what's best for they think for the electoral politics, sometimes you think someone can't win or you think they would be better placed in another race. I don't know. But I know that Karen, at least my view, is that worked like basically finger to the bone to elect Democrats. That was all she did and cared about as chair. And before that, because for various reasons, I think the contrast has been clearly drawn that there are many good Republicans out there, but none of them seem to be doing anything for 
elected Republicans certainly weren't doing much for the people that Senator Peterson represented and for New Orleanians and frankly, for a lot of Louisianians. And so there wasn't a lot of hope that electing a Republican would help. Um, and I know that there were so many ways in which we um, we know that she worked very hard to elect Democrats um, up and down the ballot the best you can. And again, party chair, as I've said in the past, and I say this alone cannot elect people. They are not the decider about who gets elected at all. And I think what's interesting about John Bell, and I met John Bell when he was a state rep running, when he began running for governor, but I knew him as a state rep when I was working in the Senate. He he was self-assured that he was going to run despite, by the way, not just those three people you mentioned in that race, I mean, in that, in that uh, meeting, a host of people, including some later allies telling him he couldn't win. I mean, literally everyone saying like, good luck, state rep from a meet, running statewide, never having run a statewide race, never having raised much money, never having had a profile outside of your own district. And I'm just, I think John Bell overcame not just that meeting, but probably a thousand meetings like that to become yeah. governor. And while that one has some heavyweights in it, there are probably some other times where he had some heavyweights telling him, look, you couldn't do, not because John Bell's wasn't a good candidate, but because at the time it just didn't seem there was a machine coming. David Vitter's coming. He's got millions of dollars. He's, he's, you know, the Republicans were ascendant and are ascendant in Louisiana. How could a, a, a Democratic rep, not a senator even, who represents, yeah, well, you know, 40,000 people? And we've mentioned this multiple times on the podcast too. Yeah. Mary Landrieu had just lost the year before. Democrats were deflated over that. They were convinced we never have another statewide right. Democrat. I mean, against a really not a strong candidate, Bill Cassidy, who's senator now, I mean, was not considered a very strong candidate, but that the tides had turned and that Democrats couldn't win statewide. Right, exactly. Credit John Bell for not listening to those conversations. Not listening to all those people. Trusting his own self and his own worth to go win. I, I credit Absolutely. Him. And, and look, I mean, the, the fact is that John Bell will always be a political story and having accomplished so much because of how few people were with him at the beginning and how much he had to, just like you were describing other candidates, John Bell worked harder than yeah. any candidate in that race Fire. by far and was everywhere. And I remember distinctly in my role, just being around, he was at events early and we were there, by the way, I was there. I remember an event over here in New Orleans at a, a law firm here, a small law firm in New Orleans, they had a rooftop thing. And it was like, there were like 10 people in the room, literally for John Bell campaigning for governor. And there were like 10 people there. And, it, and not including the elected officials that were just like kind of milling about. I'm, there was nobody there. And John Bell probably faced dozens, if not hundreds of those rooms to get yeah. where he needed to go and never let him let it deter him. And that just shows the character and the consistency with which he ran. And his, I mean, that's a very hard thing to do. I don't care who you are being, getting to a room where you're excited about your candidacy and having nobody, basically nobody show up. Yeah. is a really soul crushing thing. And to be able to push through that again and again. It was said of him at the time that he'd drive, literally he'd drive across the state for a $500 check. Absolutely. And, and you know what, like there's nothing you can teach about that. You know, that was, that was his his ambition and personal interest in helping people and becoming governor to do all the things he promised to do um, and his commitment to that was what got it done because no one can sit in your ear and tell you no don't worry about all these people telling you no you have to believe it 
And John Bell believed it. And he proved all these people, you know, who maybe didn't believe in him wrong, but also a lot, he converted a lot of those people from deniers to believers. Uh, and so if I could get him in a room with people, they, they buy, they believe him. They 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 bought it. And, and a lot of, I mean, I, I thought it's again, it'll be a story for the ages for, because nobody anointed John Bell. Nobody gave the Democrats weren't sitting around in the smoke filled room saying who we should get the run for governor. John, Bell. there were a lot of other names at the time, uh, bandy the ballot uh running for governor i i, I don't i don't recall all um, of them and i don't want to misspeak people but people have perennially talked about mitch Lindbergh. yeah i mean you know i remember when bobby jindal was running in 07 there was this oh well, john bro is gonna run but he was what, even when he was in the, i mean there have been you know all the nature of all these people uh, that were going to run but john bell heard all those names and said no no, no i'm gonna do it and he was again no, I, the least well-known guy from a state party perspective because i did work at the party uh mm -hmm. 2013 14 and 15 right right and immediately after mary landrew's race our we were tasked with pivoting to john bell at the end of 2014 by december 2014 we were pivoting to work on john bell and i know the dscc endorsed him early so that we could get a coordinated campaign started early mm -hmm. and i I never had the faintest hint that we were not full steam ahead for him. It was always go, go get this man elected. So whatever one day meeting there was, I just wanted to put this in there. Mm -hmm. We were focused 100% for a year on that election and mm -hmm. uh, never told anything but get him elected, get him elected, get him. That's your sole goal this year. I think the party was dedicated to his election and dedicated to his reelection. And it was very hard. And I just want to point out that John Bell won a pretty decent victory in 2015. Um, but in fact, in 2019, that election was very close, very close. And without the coordination and I mean, I, I just point out in New Orleans, I mean, the turnout was pushed from, I think, about 95,000 raw votes to like 120,000 raw, raw vote from primary to runoff, which is not necessarily usually the case where you get a higher turnout on the runoff. Sometimes you do, but it, you need to put some effort in because um, the nature of how much coordination there was yeah. between all the people that were trying to get John Bell reelected because of all the well, things we needed him to do. Maybe I haven't mentioned the... Bayou brief piece I wrote called Ground Game this season. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm, I'll mention mm -hmm. it again because I do like to mention that there were all those community group efforts that right. really kicked in. And PS were ready to kick in for a runoff this year, had there been one in 2019, uh, when John Bell got to the to the runoff, they knew the importance of getting him reelected and mm -hmm. they, they put the work in. And that so that is what is possible when we can get a Democrat to a runoff. People don't understand, by the way, I'll just mention this, and then I want to pivot to the final three questions. Sure. People often don't understand, like, well, why can't those groups just be the mobilization groups for all of the uh, election year? And they can't because they don't have that kind of money. So they try to find, like, where can they invest? And so they can look, oh, well, we can run and a one month campaign, we can run a one month mobilization effort 
but they can't be a campaign. They can't support a campaign for nine months, right? So the campaigns do, and the party does, have to do some of the early upfront legwork. Then those other mobilization groups can kind of come in and do the support for the end. Totally, totally true. And I think that the party is just uniquely suited to that task. And when no one's paying attention to the race a year before or whatever, they can be working on that specifically um, if they're if they're so motivated to do so, if they have the right leadership involved. And that's, by the way, so I, I also like to remind folks that those mobilization groups need to be funded as well. So if you're looking for places to invest your time or your money, those are also really good spaces to go. Mm-hmm. Andrew, I appreciate you taking so much time to talk to me. And I sure. you know we could probably talk for three more hours. Um, but I do want to ask the last three questions. And normally I would ask you, what do you think the biggest obstacle for progressives are in the state? But because we're in this space with the Democratic Party, I'd really rather ask you right now, what's the biggest obstacle for the Democrats? What's the biggest obstacle for the Democratic Party in the state? Well, I do think that the party has a really it's got a lot of soul searching to do about what it wants to spend time doing right now um i think that there are unfortunately it's been winnowed down to there are very few democrats who face electoral threat from the right right now because of the districting so we aren't looking at a lot of rd races anymore as it pertains to the legislature as it pertains to Congress, um, hopefully with this redraw, the congressional um, districts will have another Democratic seat. That would be great. Um, But I think it's time, I think from the party's perspective, is that the party building aspect of it is now should be the predominant thing, not elections, because there just aren't going to be tons of elections that Democrats are competing against Republicans or non-Democrats in. The time is now to spend all of our time finding um, ways to coordinate resources. And I don't mean money. I mean, resources, whether it's tutorial, whether it's opportunities, it's whether it's helping people burnish their credentials or learn how to be a candidate and all those things to find ways to be a hub for that activity. Um, I don't think you're going to find a ton of local or parish executive committees that are super effective at this, although it'd be great if they were. We've had this conversation about that. I think the party has to just be there for any of these affiliated groups, right? So not just the DPEX, but also any of these affiliated groups, whether it's the, the Climate Voter Project or the, you know, uh, the the Swing Left, all the ones that, you know, we can name and go through and that are looking for candidates that the party be a hub at, to access resources and to lower the barriers for people to learn how to be a candidate and be effective as candidates, because I don't think they're just the electoral pieces. You know, we can spend all the time we want doing fantasy politics about who's going to run for what, but there is no who right now. And there is no election where Democrats and very few elections now there where there can be a, uh, I think an effective democratic candidate because we haven't even spent the time to find these new candidates and find people I think who are, who are going to be motivated to sacrifice beyond the promise of, you know, elected office that, that, you know, um, you're going to, that's going to take a lot of work. Um, there's just got to be a party chair. It can't be about, you know, any of the sort of the accoutrement of being chair, you know, visits to the white house or all this other stuff you get 
as being a party chair of one of the 50 parties and you know 50 plus parties with all the territory states um i mean uh, uh, across the state so you know that's got to be a specific type of person and it doesn't it's not just about that person but it's about that person's ability to bring people together around that concept there are many executive committee positions as well that can Absolutely. do a lot of that work also and i i would hope that we'd get more people interested in actually serving rather than just carrying a title in those mm -hmm. executive committee positions because they could have some power and they could do some work that re really could uh, transform the party. What's our, what's our biggest opportunity? What's Democrats' biggest opportunity? Well, I've been very excited to see the, the emergence of people the candidates, elected officials who are focused on, I think, really carrying forward the work of so many grassroots groups, um, the emergence of groups, whether it's the vote folks here in New Orleans, whether it's the the uh, folks trying to elect more women. There, there, there are some really motivated um, grassroots groups that are really kind of ready. They're now ready to be real players in the electoral space and can, if connected, could really help foster this new generation of candidates who are committed to uh, contrasts and values and authenticity. And so I'm actually, you know, some of these are sometimes losses can be clarifying and losses like the party, Democrats and people, honestly, have faced, are facing here in Louisiana, can be clarifying in recognizing what we really, truly need to have as candidates, as leaders, um, as organizers. So, um, you know, I, I hate to have to lose to learn this, um, but if it takes a loss to learn that and to clarify how important it is to have people who are committed to real contrast and authenticity and to service um, and not to politics as celebrity or politics as opportunity or politics are as solely for ambition although every politician is ambitious and should be if you want to serve you want someone who is ambitious enough to sacrifice um but i do think that maybe losses can be clarifying in that way um you don't want to have to reach bottom to rebuild that's never great um but the party just doesn't hold any elected statewide elected office right now you know our high Frankly, our highest elected official right now is Congressman Troy Carter, who's doing a great job, and Public Service Commissioner Devontae Lewis. And beyond that, there aren't any elected Democrats in power right now. Um, uh, and, also still there. and and uh, Commissioner Campbell as well. And I and I think Commissioner Campbell is actually, I believe, I don't want to misspeak, but I believe Commissioner Campbell is actually uh, termed out from the PSC. Yeah. Yeah. And so and so you know. He won't be running again, although I love Commissioner Campbell. So I think there needs the folks that have electoral features and who are going to be future leaders, um, you know, are, are are yet to be written. Right. We've got some great folks. Like I said, I think Congressman Carter is doing a really good job. He's been delivered, frankly, probably been the foremost deliverer of resources to Congress, uh, Congressional District 2 and and to City of New Orleans. Um, you know, certainly going back in history, he's been he's tremendous at that. And he's a tremendous leader in on Capitol Hill. And similarly, Commissioner Lewis has been extraordinary uh, in building, uh, I think, a, a cohort of people who are concerned about 
the climate and concerned about, um, you know, whether it's free prison phones, whether it's, you know, making sure that, you know, your utility companies aren't exploiting and extracting, but rather serving. I mean, he's, he's a tremendous leader and we've got great leaders in cities too. And I won't mention all my friends here in New Orleans because they're numerous, obviously my boss, Helena Moreno is, I think a great leader here in the city, but you know, the democratic party lost the mayor of Shreveport race yeah. uh, recently. You know, I just, just to highlight, you know, where some of our great leaders have come from in the past, you know, under chair Peterson, the Democrats held all five of the largest cities, uh, the mayor's or mayor president seat of all five of the largest cities in Louisiana. We don't right now. Um, and so we, I think it's time that clarifying moment where even you've lost the things that you think Democrats would win, you know, mayor's races and majority Democratic cities. Well, and I'll give another opportunity because there are a lot of young people who are seeing these things and who deeply care about our climate and making the state livable and sustainable. So a lot of those folks are, I've heard from several of those folks who are looking at the party leadership elections. And so I think there are some exciting opportunities there that people may not be aware of yet. So I would ask people to stay tuned because we we may have, fingers crossed, but we may have, and and like, I don't like to tell people stories for them, so I'm not mentioning names, but to, uh, to me, there've been some exciting people step up and say, I'm looking at this now. And they probably Absolutely. wouldn't before October 14th. I'll just say it that way. It's probably clarifying, like you said, that's a clarifying moment. Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to, I think that, you know, we're looking towards March now. Um, and, you know, I don't know who's running for party chair. I don't know if the current chair is running for re-election or if there's going to be some new folks. Um, my assumption is, you know, there'll be a race for a party chair. I think that's one of the pieces that needs to be put in place. It's not the only one, but it's one of the pieces. I want to continue to lift up a lot of these grassroots groups who work so diligently, sometimes in anonymity and some of, especially in the non-urban parishes outside of Orleans, outside of Baton Rouge, it's much harder to organize and to work uh, in rural or non-urban Louisiana for progressive values. As much as people want to say there's all these hidden voters and all these hidden Democrats, and we just create these values, you, you run into a ton of resistance. No one gives this up. You have to really take it. And so I want to highlight all the grassroots works that's being done and, and and hope that in the future, the work around coordinating with the party and, and Democratic leaders represents and lifts up that work and doesn't replace it, but rather highlights it and and utilizes it and coordinates it and supports it. Right. Because I think it's there's no reason to remake. And this is not true of all places, but there's no reason to remake the work of so many organizers and, and folks right. around the state. Right. Um, uh, and I, I do think there's there's opportunity there. Or, or to co-opt it or, or to, to co-opt it. Right. Poach, poach people from those right. spaces. Right? Right. Just right. Right. Those spaces are truly important because, you know, it can't always be about electoral policies. It's really important. You know, as I've often told people, especially some of my friends who organize, you know, across the some of the left groups who, you know, I support and I, I'm I like to see it rise and, and help bring those contrasts. But the, the fact of the matter is you can do all you want, but electoral uh, politics is important because you can't implement any of these ideas without holding power. Right. And, you know, like, and um, uh, it's never been more true that, you know, you, you really do 
um, have to win elections. You have to do what it takes to win elections. It doesn't mean, you know, sacrificing your values, but it, it does mean doing the hard work of winning elections, which takes a whole lot of work. And it's not as uh, easy as some people think. And it's not as it's just it's not just posting on the Internet. Right. So um, uh, to, to not that that's not important sometimes, but uh, or to get your frustration out. So I just I just love to you know, it's not to co-op, but to make sure that we're working in concert with and supporting groups who are making change, but also making sure that there's a room for electoral politics, too, because you got to You got to have the power. Andrew, who is your favorite superhero? You know, my friend Jean-Paul Morel is a very big superhero guy, and he has lots of stuff on his uh, on his, in his office about superheroes uh, Two, OK, uh, just two that I think are great are. I think Captain Marvel's one that's a that is great. I like the uh, I've really I guess I like the the Black Panther movies are really great. So I think I like Black Panther. I like Thor. I don't know much about Thor. He's just I've saw one of the movies is very funny. Um, those are probably terrible answers, not political ones. I'm not a big superhero person. Sorry. There are no wrong answers to who's your Good. favorite. Good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, thanks so much for speaking with me. It's been a, a joy to speak politics with you as as it always is. Well, I really appreciate all the work you do, Linda. It's it's invaluable, um, and you're irreplaceable. And the work you, I, I can't I can't thank you enough for your commitment to this because honestly, I don't see anyone else doing it like you do. And you make you give a lot of people hope with the work you do. So it's it's tremendously important. So thank you. Thank you for listening to Louisiana Lefty. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you to Ben Collinsworth for producing Louisiana Lefty. Jen Pack of Black Cat Studios for our super lefty artwork and Thousand Dollar Car for allowing us to use their Swamp Pop Classic Security Guard as our Louisiana lefty theme song.